The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us today. Our guest is Richard Heinberg. He's the author of a new book. He has several books out, and I invite you to to take a look at what he has to offer his own personal bookshelf. But the new book that has just come out is called The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Reality. And what it does is it talks about the environmental limits of what our economic growth over the past couple of hundred years has depended upon and how our natural resources and what's happening to their supply and the demand for them is intersecting with some some things that our economy counts on in order to grow. And so while this uh, may not be the most uplifting message that we've ever had on Go Green uh, Radio, it is a message that is based on a lot of data, a lot of facts and statistics that we need to take a look at in order to be prepared and in order to feel empowered to take the kind of action that will ready our families, our society, our government, and our financial institutions for some of the things that we're going to be reaching as we see the supply of our natural resources that are the foundation of our economy begin to deplete and begin to become more expensive to extract. So, Richard, thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. Well, thank you, Jill. It's really a pleasure. Well, I'd like to begin just by asking you to help us to understand what prompted you to write this book. Well, you know, I've been aware, as, as many people have, for uh, uh, a long time, really since I was in my 20s, uh, back, back in the uh, 1970s, early 1970s. I've been aware that uh, uh, economic growth would eventually hit some kind of, of limits. Uh, there was a report published in 1972 called Limits to Growth, which became the best-selling environmental book of all time. I read it when I was 22 years old, and it really changed my life. Um, so I've had this this basic understanding or, or expectation that at some point this would happen, and uh, and then around a decade ago or so, back around 1998, I began following um, global oil supplies because I, I I became convinced that that would be the limit to growth that would that we we would uh, see catch up with us first, and then in 2008 when we had the financial crash and the big oil price spike up to almost $150 a barrel. But the thought crossed my mind, I wonder if this is, uh, if, if this is what we're seeing right now, uh, that we are seeing the, uh, the limits to growth catch up with us. So I, I started doing some pretty intensive research and had conversations with uh, not only uh, resource experts, but also with economists and um, Wall Street insiders. And um, the information I uh, was getting was all lining up, uh, suggesting that yes, that's exactly what's happening. We are seeing the end of economic growth as we've known it. 
And what did you hope um, that your readers would take away from the book? Just information or something more than that? Right. Well, um, you, you know, telling people that, that we're reaching the end of economic growth is in some ways uh, uh, not a good idea because uh, we live in an, in an economy that's kind of a confidence game. Uh, you, you know, we, we depend upon economic growth for jobs and for returns on investments. And if economic growth stops, then it's, it's, it's really bad news for a lot of people. But because uh, the economy depends on consumer confidence so much, uh, writing a book like this could actually do a lot of damage. So I had, to, I had to weigh that against the fact that, you know, if we don't understand uh, as a society that we are headed into this fundamental economic shift, we could make some very bad decisions and we could fail to adapt uh, in ways that would, would actually cause much more harm. So I thought on balance it was important to write the book, and I hope readers will come away not just with a sense of you know, foreboding and warning and, and so on, but also with, with a sense of empowerment that there are things that they can do in their own communities, in their own households, to, to uh, make life better in a post-growth world. You know, your book gives an excellent description of how our current economy depends upon growth, debt, and natural resources. I'd like to focus on the latter for just a little bit because I think that a lot of people understand that human beings depend on natural resources, but they don't necessarily understand how that parlays to the economy. So let's start with water. Um, In what way is the economy dependent on adequate and affordable water supplies? Well, of course, we all need water for for drinking and bathing and cooking and, and so on. But I think most of us tend to forget how in, how essential water is to industrial processes and also to energy production. Uh, every coal power plant uses uh, enormous amounts of water. Uh, and basically, a, a, a coal power plant and nu- nuclear power plant these are just big steam kettles that use uh, steam to turn giant turbines that generate the electricity. So uh, electricity depends upon water. Refining oil depends upon water. Uh, uh, All the new uh, techniques for uh, drilling for natural gas and oil, so-called fracking or hydrofracking, those depend upon enormous amounts of water. So in fact, as we as we develop all of these new systems for production and uh, pr- uh, production of energy especially, uh, we become even more dependent on water supplies. And that, that creates potential problems, as we've seen in, in recent years, where there have been really serious droughts. In some occasions, um, of, of course, in, during droughts, people's demand for uh, usually for water and drinking water and for cooling, uh, air conditioning increases. But the ability of our uh, industrial system to supply those things becomes uh, Im- imperiled as, as water supplies, uh, the fresh water supplies decline. So um, water c- can, in the worst instance, uh, severely limit energy supplies. And also, we haven't talked about agriculture. We, we, we use most of our uh, fresh water actually for agriculture and, and uh, uh, problems with water supplies are showing up in, in higher food prices. So there are lots of ways in which uh, um, problems with water uh, show up in the economy. 
Richard, how is it that the economy is so dependent upon oil? Yes, well, of course, oil is uh, is roughly 98% of our transport energy globally. It, it, uh, it makes uh, automobiles, airplanes, uh, trains, and ships go. And uh, that's important not just for getting people to and from the shopping center and their jobs, but also for transporting goods uh, uh, over ever longer distances. And it's also important for our food system. We've created a food system that depends overwhelmingly on oil for transporting uh, inputs to the farm, outputs from the farm, ultimately to the consumer's plate. Uh, Oil also is a feedstock for plastics and chemicals of all kinds, including uh, chemicals for agriculture, pesticides and herbicides and so on. So even though uh, oil supplies um, only about uh, 30-35% of our total energy, it really is kind of the linchpin of the economy. If if we have an oil price spike, as we have had several times in the last few decades, that almost always leads to an immediate recession. And, of course, we saw that again in 2008. Absolutely. You know, I, I can't help but ask the same question about natural gas and coal. I mean, we hear a lot about the production and the use of both of these natural resources, but how do they impact directly the economy itself? Right. Well, of course, coal uh, is uh, a, a, the source of about half of our electricity in the United States. Some countries get even more. China gets uh, about 80% of its electricity from coal. Uh, so even though we, we tend to think of coal as the fuel of the early industrial period, sort of, you know, 19th century uh, early industrial revolution, uh, in, in, a, in fact, we depend on coal uh, a great deal today. And the uh, same is true also for natural gas. We generate... Uh, um, Oh, 20, 30% of our electricity from natural gas right now. But uh, most of our new, nat- new electrical uh, generation capacity over the last decade has been in the natural gas sector. Uh, and, of course, we also use natural gas for producing nitrogen fertilizer and, uh, and again, for all kinds of petrochemicals. Well, and and I know that we hear more and more about rare earth minerals, but those aren't the only minerals and metals that uh, our economy depends upon. Tell us about you know some of the metals and minerals that are so critical to the economy and economic growth. Right. Well, of course, there's a, a very long list, uh, and uh, up until around the year 2000, uh, ironically enough, even though we were depleting Earth's stocks of non-renewable mineral resources, uh, prices of things like copper and antimony, zinc, uh, gold, and so on, were tended to be getting cheaper in inflation-adjusted terms. And the reason for that was we were using cheap energy, the cheap energy of fossil fuels, mostly oil, uh, to dig deeper and to refine lower grades of mineral ores, and then also to globalize the whole process of mineral extraction and, uh, and uh, industrial use. So we saw these prices declining, and many economists assume that this would go on uh, indefinitely, but since about the year 2000, that trend has changed. 
and prices for, again, uh, silver, uh, uh, copper, antimony, zinc, and also the, some of these rare elements like indium and gallium that are important for the computer industry and for even for the renewable energy industry have started to become more costly and scarce. Uh, and it looks as though that trend is going to continue, especially as energy prices continue to rise. Interesting. Well, we've got much more coming after this quick commercial break. Richard Heinberg is the author of a new book called The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Reality, and we've got much more right after this, so don't go away, folks. More Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Richard Heinberg, author of a new book called The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Reality. Now, in the last segment, we were talking about how our economy depends upon certain natural resources. We talked about water, 
oil, natural gas, coal, and various metals and minerals. And now that our listeners have a better understanding, Richard, about how the economy is dependent upon natural resources, let's talk about how the supply of these resources is changing and what the economic impact, uh, what impact that will have. Let's start with oil. I know that you have done an awful lot of work on peak oil. We hear that term a lot. But for everyday Americans, uh, we don't always understand what exactly peak oil has to do with our economy or, more importantly, economic growth. So give us, right. give us the Reader's Digest version of that. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, some people think that peak oil has to do with running out of oil, but actually that's, that's not the case. It simply uh, refers to the moment in time when we reach the maximum rate of production of the resource. And we know this uh, is going to happen because we've seen it sort of in miniature uh, many, many times before with individual oil wells and oil fields and whole oil-producing countries. Most famously, our country, the United States, in the early 20th century was by far the world's foremost oil-producing nation and the world's foremost oil-exporting nation. Uh, We saw the rate of oil discoveries in the U.S. peak and begin to decline back in the 1930s. And we've seen the rate of oil production in the U.S. reach its peak in 1970, and we're producing a little bit more than half of the amount of oil today that we were producing in 1970. So this is happening in country after country around the world. What's happening with oil is that we're using the low-hanging fruit principle of extraction. So we're going after the high quality, easiest to access, cheapest to produce oil first, and we're leaving the nasty, dirty, expensive stuff for later. But in in the larger scheme of things, it's later. The cheap, easy oil is pretty much gone. And so when we see incremental new demand for oil on the world scene, as we're seeing uh, largely in China right now, where people are buying millions of new cars for the first time. Uh, When we see that new demand, it can only be met with new sources of oil in ultra-deep water, where we're drilling in a mile or two of ocean water, or from uh, tar sands in Canada, or other very low-quality and expensive-to-produce sources. So that's inevitably driving up prices. There's just no getting around that. There is speculation in oil markets, but the the influence of speculation is much, much smaller than that of simply uh, increasing costs of production. And those increasing costs inevitably result in higher oil prices and therefore... Uh, the uh, costs to the economy as a whole, because as consumers have to spend more filling up the tanks of their SUVs, they have less money to spend on mortgage payments, on uh, paying off their credit cards, on buying new flat screen TVs, and all the rest of the things they'd like to do. So that that's why uh, oil price spikes uh, cause recessions. Well, and and how does that translate into that ever-important economic growth? You know, right now, every country that's been impacted by the financial situation that our our globe has been, you know, experiencing for the past three, almost three and a half years, um, they're looking for indicators of economic growth. And while we understand how a rise in oil prices affects us as individual consumers, how does it impact economic growth. Right. Well, first we have to understand that economic growth is a recent phenomenon. 
It's something we've just seen over the past few decades, and we've we've gotten to think of it as normal, but it's in, in the larger historic sense. Economic growth is not normal at all. And the main reason we've had all this economic growth is because of cheap, abundant, concentrated energy that's enabled us to manufacture more stuff, transport it further distances, globalize the whole process of, of production and, and consumption. Uh, and as oil gets more expensive, that means that economic growth gets more difficult. Um, uh, James Hamilton, who's a, a professor of economics at uh, UC San Diego, has done a lot of work on this subject, and his, uh, his analysis suggests that when the price of oil gets up to about $100 a barrel and stays there for more than a few months, that tends to choke off economic growth. Of course, that's an inflation-adjusted figure. But that's where the price of oil is right now, uh, globally. It's, it's just a, a fraction over $100 a barrel and has been for the last few months. And that's one of the reasons that we're seeing world economic growth starting to taper off again after the, the brief recovery that we've seen over the last couple of years. Well, and, you know, I just got CNN breaking news uh, a few minutes before we went live this morning that there were no new jobs added to the U.S. economy uh, in the past month. And so um, some of these economic theories or economic, um, you know, uh, projections that are related to peak oil seem to be very valid. Let's Switch gears to natural gas for just a minute. We've been hearing a lot about natural gas. On the one hand, when it's used as a fuel, its emissions are clean compared to fossil fuels. But on the other hand, the process of extracting natural gas is not necessarily without risk or expense. In your yes. book, you say the following. Currently, many companies that specialize in gas fracking are sub, uh, subsisting on investment capital rather than from profits from production because natural gas prices are not high enough to make production profitable in most instances. So my question, Richard, is if the price of natural gas must eventually go up so that profits cover the cost of extraction versus just capital investments, how will that impact the economy? Right. Well, uh, of course, fo uh, natural gas is a fossil fuel, and uh, we, we've done a study uh, at, at Post Carbon Institute um, on uh, this new technology of natural gas hydrofracking, uh, basically uh, uh, using explosives and large amounts of water and chemicals to open up uh, the rock pours in in uh, in low porosity shale deposits to liberate the natural gas. Uh, we have seen uh, a, 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 quite a large amount of natural gas production over the last three or four years from shale gas deposits, and enormous claims are being made uh, for the potential of shale gas to uh, power the U.S. economy for the next century. Uh, we, as I said, we did a study looking at uh, both the supply situation and also the environmental impacts, and our conclusions were very much different from the um, the claims of the industry. We found that the the uh, decline rates in average shale gas uh, wells are very high, uh, and that the likely um, total reserve base is much smaller than has been claimed. Now, since our report has come out, it's been vindicated by a number of other studies, including 
one by the U.S. Geological Survey on the, uh, the Marcellus uh, shale gas region of uh, Pennsylvania and New York State. Um, and it's, uh, there, there's a lot of rethinking going on right now about shale gas. First of all, about its, uh, uh, its greenhouse gas Im- impact and implications. It's now understood that uh, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from shale gas production are as high as or over the short term, over, over the 20 to 50 year time frame, even higher than those of coal and also that the uh, the production costs are going to be so high that we really can't count on this as an abundant, cheap source of energy. So uh, if we're counting on shale gas for ec- economic growth over the next few decades, I think we have to uh, look at that again. Good point. Well, let's, let's shift gears to coal, because everybody knows that its emissions are contributing to pollution and greenhouse gases. But, you know, if you're in a pinch, it's cheap, and it's an abundant form of energy, for electricity production in particular, we know that coal is finite and it won't last forever, but the widely held perception is that there's enough to last for several generations. However, in your book, Richard, you say that increasingly the coal that's being mined is of lower and steadily declining energy content. Talk about the ramifications of that fact, both on the world's energy supply and on the economy. Right. Well, U.S. saw peak energy from coal in 1998. Even though we're mining more coal, we're getting less energy from it because we're having to go to lower quality deposits. Now, the, the big news on the coal front, of course, is China. China is now mining and using three and a half times as much coal as the United States. That's three and a half billion tons of coal per year. Uh, but China is increasingly going to be having problems supplying its coal demand from uh, domestic sources. So China has now begun to import coal from countries like Australia and Indonesia. The problem is the entire world coal export trade is only about 700 million tons per year. And China can absorb all of that with just another two or three or four years of, of energy growth. So this means we'll be seeing higher coal prices uh, globally just as a result of, of China's increasing coal appetite. Uh, I wrote about this in uh, an article in Nature magazine last November with my co-author David Fridley of the uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And uh, our conclusion was that uh, world coal prices will uh, probably rise something like 30% per year, and we're seeing this in 2011 uh, in comparison with 2010. The U.S. is somewhat insulated because it's self-sufficient in coal supplies uh, currently. However, as China's demand for coal, uh, uh, coal imports increases, then even coal producers in the United States will find, uh, as, as they can get more money from exporting coal to China than they can from selling to uh, domestic power producers, uh, coal prices here in the U.S. will rise as well. Wow, that's uh, that's not a pretty picture because uh, your coal has been lauded as the, the cheap version of electricity in a pinch and to maintain a good, great standard of living um, with all the things that electricity brings to us that, uh, that, that coal was a cheap alternative, even if it's, um, its greenhouse gas emissions are egregious. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more with Richard Heinberg and his new book, The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Realities. Don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this.
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're talking about a really simple concept, but it has some very complex ramifications. The simple concept is living within the planet's budget of natural resources. You can't go into deficit with natural resources, and our economy depends upon our supply and our use of things like water, oil, natural gas, coal, etc. We're joined today by Richard Heinberg. If you're just joining us, he has a new book out called The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Reality. And we've been talking about uh, both the fact that our economy depends on natural resources, but also that the supplies of those natural resources that are the foundation of our economy are either dwindling or they're becoming more expensive for a variety of reasons. Some of that is due to higher demand for those resources, and some of it is doing is due to higher production costs and extraction costs for those natural resources. You know, Richard, there are some thought leaders out there who recognize the inevitability of what we've just discussed, that our economy does indeed depend upon natural resources, 
and that the resources we're currently using will not last forever. And so some of these people advocate for substitutions for our current menu of resources and or greater efficiency in our use of these resources. In your opinion, can we get to a point where we're so efficient in our energy and water use that we no longer have shortages that will negatively impact the economy? Right. Uh, well, first of all, it's, it's really important that we do pursue substitution and energy efficiency. Uh, these are going to be absolutely essential strategies for adapting to uh, the planet's uh, resource limits. However, I think sometimes claims are made for substitution and efficiency that are uh, a little unrealistic. Uh, the claim specifically that we'll be able to uh, continue producing economic growth uh, in the future uh, using substitutes for current resources and by increasing the uh, efficiency with which we use energy. You know, energy is, when all said and done, really the master resource because it enables, uh, it enables us to extract and use all other resources. Take away energy and the economy stops dead in its tracks. So the most important thing for us will be to substitute other sources of energy for fossil fuels. Uh, but that's not going to be so easy to do. Um, we do certainly need to be developing solar and wind power, geothermal, uh, microhydro, uh, uh, wave power, uh, tidal power, all the, the enormous uh, suite of, of alternatives and renewables. The problem is that what they're trying to replace, uh, plain old natural gas, coal, and oil, is uh, is really hard to replace because these fossil fuels have have economic qualities and benefits that are uh, really quite remarkable. Uh, think about maybe sometime when you've run out of gas in your car and had to push your car off to the side of the road. That's a lot of work. Well, pushing your car 20 or 30 miles is the equivalent of six or eight weeks of hard human labor. But we get that from a single gallon of gasoline for which we're paying less than $4. So six or eight weeks energy equivalent hard human labor for $4. Well, that's why we've mechanized so much uh, in, over the last century. It's because oil is so concentrated and so cheap. So it's really hard for other energy sources to compete with that. And uh, the, the thing is, they're going to have to because uh, oil is, is uh, not just environmentally problematic, it's also uh, limited in, in uh, quantity. And as, as we've been uh, talking about already in this show, we are going to be seeing more scarce and expensive oil. So that means even though uh, alternative energy sources may not have quite the same economic benefits, we're going to have to invest in them nevertheless. Well, and it's, it's interesting that you mention investing in alternative energies. Just this week, we saw one of the supposedly shining stars of the solar industry, Solyndra, uh, lay off 1,100 workers and um, filing for bankruptcy. And just last year, the president was at that plant. Uh, it's very near to where I live out here in Northern California. And this was the darling of federal government investment. I mean, there was a lot of federal dollars that were invested in that solar production. What's impacting uh, the failure? How could a company like that, and you say we need to invest in alternative energies, we did, 
uh, and now they're going bankrupt. Why is that? Um, what economic pressures and what competitive factors are going on worldwide that have caused such a rapid decline in what should have been one of our premier solar production plants? Well, what happened in this case was uh, competition from China. Uh, China not only has cheap labor, China is also heavily subsidizing its renewable energy sector. China understands that it has an enormous economic problem in its future in the form of uh, coal depletion. China's economy, as, as we talked about earlier, is overwhelmingly dependent on coal right now, but uh, its future coal supplies look really problematic, so China is developing its renewable energy sector as rapidly as it possibly can, and that means enormous subsidies. Uh, and that, in turn, means that uh, solar panels from China are much cheaper than ones that we're producing here in the U.S. So until we start subsidizing our own uh, renewable energy industry to the same degree that China is, uh, it's going to be very difficult for us to compete. And, of course, that's a big problem because not only does it mean that uh, China's industry will grow while ours withers, it also means that as time goes on and the transportation costs increase, uh, that, then we will be without a domestic source of renewable energy technology. Right. Well, and even if we are manufacturing them here in the U.S., the rare earth minerals that are needed to even manufacture the solar panels um, are largely imported, at least at this point, correct? That's right. Currently, almost all rare earth uh, minerals come from mines in China. Now, of course, the reason for that is that the Chinese could do it cheaper. We do have rare earth uh, mineral deposits here in the United States, but those mines were closed down years ago because uh, the stuff could be gotten cheaper from China. Well, and of course, China doesn't have the national debt that the U.S. does, and so that does afford them. You know, sometimes we look at the Chinese economic growth numbers and a GDP of between 8 and 12 percent a year, and, you know, we wonder, well, gosh, what would that be like? Well, these are the kind of things that they can spend that GDP growth on, um, and, and that's a luxury that currently the U.S. just doesn't have. Um, you know, you were part of a study that uh, you mentioned in the book. The study was called Searching for a Miracle, Net Energy Limits and the Fate of Industrial Societies. Talk to our listeners about that study and some of the conclusions that were reached. Right. Well, what we did was to look at 18 different energy sources, uh, including conventional fossil fuels, but also uh, a, a large range of renewable energy uh, options, and compare them across 10 different criteria. And those are, criteria are things like the energy that's returned on the energy that we invest in getting energy, the environmental impacts, the scalability, the location of the energy source. All of these things are, are very important uh, in, in evaluating which energy sources we should be investing in. Uh, now, we, we found, uh, no surprise to anyone who's, who, who's, who studies these issues, that some of the uh, alternative energy sources have, uh, ha have significant uh, challenges. Solar and wind, for example, are uh, intermittent, so the sun is not always shining, the wind is not always blowing, and that makes it hard for them to compete with natural gas and coal 
which you know you can just uh, uh, mine any time of the year and uh, feed into a boiler any time you want to. Uh, our conclusion from that study was that while there are many viable sources of energy, it's extremely unlikely that we'll be able to continue increasing the total amount of useful energy to society as fossil fuels deplete. And that has, of course, again, enormous economic implications because we have relied upon cheap, abundant energy to grow the economy up to this point. If we're going to have less energy in the future and it's going to be more expensive energy and with different economic characteristics, such as more intermittency, then that means economic growth is going to be very, very difficult to come by in the, in the decades ahead. Well, and that's something that I think it's really good for our listeners to keep in mind because as we hear about different technologies, different biofuels and things like that, we get all excited about um, what that could mean in terms of an alternative to some of the fossil fuels we're currently using. But one of the important things to remember is exactly what you said, how much net energy you get after expending a certain amount of energy to extract or to create that energy source. And uh, many of the alternative fuels that we're seeing just simply do not have the same return on investment of energy that we see out of, out of coal and and uh, oil. You know, one of the greatest factors that's accelerating the world towards this collide between supply and demand for critical natural resources is the explosive growth, and we've touched on this, of the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And their consumption of resources uh, is going to impact our economic growth, primarily from what I understand in your book, because of um, higher prices for food and fuel. Talk to us about the the relationship between the consumption of these emerging economies and overall global economic growth. Right. Well, uh, consumption uh, demand in the already industrialized world, the United States and Europe primarily, uh, also Australia and, and Canada, has pretty much leveled off. In fact, since uh, 2007, we've actually seen a decline in demand for energy and, uh, and many other uh, resources in these already industrialized countries. Where we're seeing increasing demand is in largely China and India. Uh, Russia and Brazil are uh, in somewhat different categories, and each of these countries has its own story to tell. But let's just focus on, on uh, China for a moment. Uh, as, as I spoke about earlier, China's uh, demand for coal has been increasing at roughly 7% per year. China's uh, overall economy is increasing at about 10% per year. It's hard to really uh, you know, deeply understand the implications of, of numbers like that. Uh, a 10% annual growth rate means that the en- entire Chinese economy is doubling in size every seven years. So after seven years, China's economy will be twice the size. After 14 years, it will be four times its current size. After 21 years, it will be eight times its current size. If you think of that in terms of demand and consumption of uh, cement, uh, copper, uh, for for wires and uh, power lines and, and, and so on, uh, for water and all of these other resources, it, it 
becomes frighteningly clear that uh, this is this is something that can't go on for very long. Many people look at the current trends in China's economy and project those to the mid-century and see this as as uh, China's century of economic uh, miracles. But uh, I look at that 10% growth rate and I see a freight train roaring down the tracks toward a brick wall. Interesting. That's not great news for uh, our <laughs> friends in China. And because of their impact on the global consumption of natural resources and the global economy, that's going to have some serious ramifications. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to have the answer to the question I know a lot of you are asking, okay, what do we do now? Don't go away, folks. The answer to that question will be coming right after this commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Healing occurs from the inside out. To awaken and activate the body's healing mechanisms, your emotions and thought patterns must be addressed and aligned with your truth. These concepts are discussed in detail on The Light Within, Awakening the Inner Healer, with host Joan Jacobs. We'll introduce you to a new way to interpret and address your body's language of symptoms and how to turn disease into a platform of profound personal growth. Tune in to The Light Within every Monday at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I want to mention to those of you who may be joining us late or who may want to recommend this episode to some of your friends and colleagues because you've enjoyed it as much as I have, learning what we have from our guest, Richard Heinberg. This show is syndicated on Voice America's Green Living Channel. So if you go to voiceamerica.com and you click on the Green Living uh, button that you'll see there, this show plays again next Tuesday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and from noon to 1 on the East Coast. So you can let your friends and family and colleagues know that this show will replay at that time. 
Well, again, our guest is Richard Heinberg, author of a new book called The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Reality. And Richard, I am a little bit concerned that some of our listeners may have been listening to this broadcast and feel like we're kind of doomed and that our children <laughs> are just about to live through the dark ages. Yeah. But according to your book, that does not have to be the case. So let's give our listeners some action items that they can take to prepare themselves for this economic shift caused by changes in our access to natural resources. And let's begin with government. What types of policies do we need government leaders to consider at this time? Well, you know, there are, are a number, but if I had to choose one to start with, it would be getting off of GDP, uh, gross domestic product. Right now we use that as almost our sole uh, indicator of economic health. But all it's really measuring is the amount of money we're spending and effectively the amount of stuff we're consuming. Now, if our goal as a society is just to consume more stuff, then we're in a bind because we're not going to be able to do that. Uh, this is really a result of what was happening in the early 20th century when our problem was overproduction. We could make, with cheap energy, we could make stuff faster than people could buy it. So we created the advertising industry to talk people into wanting more stuff, and we created consumer credit to enable people to go into debt to buy stuff. And so now we're overburdened with debt and we're running out of resources. It doesn't make any sense at all to be using GDP as a measure of our economic success. We need more robust indicators that show us how we're doing in terms of how happy we are as people, how well-educated, how healthy we are, the integrity of our environments. And a number of indicators have been suggested that could do this very well. Uh, maybe the most interesting of these is one that's been developed in the little Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan, uh, and they call it gross national happiness. Uh, for the last several decades, they've actually been measuring how happy the Bhutanese people are. And by measuring that and using that as a target, as an index, they've actually created a situation where even though the people in Bhutan consume very little, they have a relatively low GDP, but nevertheless, they're some of the happiest people in the world. Well, this is what we should be doing here. And in every country around the world, we should be targeting measures of uh, social and environmental well-being, things that we can improve about human life that don't require us to increase our consumption. Now, in terms of, of um, things that would indicate uh, jobs and things that would indicate, you know, um, the kinds of economic indicators we need to create a great standard of living, what kinds of indicators might we use to measure those things a little bit better than GDP so that we could use uh, bellwether terms to describe how gainfully employed or how, how able our citizenry is to um, maintain a good standard of living for those things that cost money? What, what might we use in place of GDP? Well, a number of indicators, as I said, have been suggested. One of them is the genuine progress indicator, uh, and this was developed over the course of the last 20 years. It's a fairly robust indicator because it, it does include all of the things that you mentioned. Uh, it includes uh, depletion of natural resources, the levels of pollution in, in the environment, levels of, of um, uh, employment, uh, public health, and so on. It's already being used in a number of communities in Seattle and Maryland, uh, and 
it's it's proving to be a, a really valuable and resilient kind of, of indicator that helps communities uh, chart a, a different economic path. But until it's adopted nationally and ideally by several nations at the same time, it's only going to be sort of an add-on to, to GDP. GDP is currently embedded in all of our uh, national economic and governmental institutions. So it, it's really at that level, at the national level, where we need to make the change. Well, and, and quite frankly, a lot of people have lost confidence that you know, changes like that are going to come out of Washington anytime soon. So let's talk about what can be done at the community level. What could, could our listeners be instituting at the regional level to help ensure that our local communities continue to thrive and have stability during this adjustment period in this new economic uh, paradigm that we're, we're moving towards? Right. Well, one thing folks could do is to check out the transition initiatives or transition towns. This is a, a, a spontaneous grassroots social phenomenon that's taken off just over the last few years. It started in Britain, but now there are uh, over 400 transition communities uh, worldwide and over 100 here in, in uh, North America. Basically, this starts when a group of people in a, in a locale uh, just get together and decide to make something happen in their, in their town, and they don't wait for government officials to lead the way. Uh, very often there are already good things going on in a community, whether it's a, a local credit union, a, a local food uh, network, a car share program or ride share program. And transition initiatives typically you know, identify these sort of post-growth economic uh, initiatives and bring them together, get people talking about them and celebrating them so that the whole community has a, a different sense of identity around its, its local uh, uh, businesses and local economic opportunities, particularly for low-income people. Uh, and, and the result ends up looking much more like a party than like a, uh, a, a protest march. People really have fun doing this work. And, um, and everywhere that transition initiatives have taken root, they've, they've really blossomed. And where can people find out more information about those transition communities? Well, all you have to do really is just uh, Google transition towns, and uh, that will take you to uh, a whole series of websites, including uh, a website for probably a transition initiative in your in your region. You know, we have about a minute left in the show, Richard. If we've got parents and grandparents who are listeners thinking, what are the top two or three things that I should be teaching my children in order to prepare them for the economy they will inherit? What advice would you give them? Well, this is kind of ironic because what, what folks should be doing right now is, is pretty simple. Uh, consuming less, spending less, uh, saving more, getting out of debt, and becoming more self-sufficient. Grow more of your own food. Learn how to repair things rather than throwing them away and replacing them. Now, the irony of this is that if everybody did these things, it would cause the economy to shrink even faster. And that's, that's the perversity of relying on economic growth uh, because it, it's taking us away from doing the very things that are sensible and important for us to do in order to adapt to our new economic reality. 
doing the things that our grandparents and great-grandparents did without even thinking about it. Well, Richard, it was great having you on the show today. You've really opened our eyes to how we are so interconnected and how the natural resources we consume every day are so, so important to the global economic picture. Thank you for joining us, and thanks to our listeners for joining us well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.